on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. As I go inside of myself, I, I realize that I am much larger than this one image of a ideal man. And that the ideal man that is a, a socially valuable image that a lot of us have branded on our brains is, you know, almost like that Spartan warrior with the shield and the spear and the helmet. He's ever ready to fight, ever ready to defend, ever ready to claim more space, claim more territory. That image is like a bottleneck. And within me, there's this whole other reality. And I realized that for me to have a healthier relationship to my authentic inside, my interior world, that I have to break that bottleneck to express more fully who I am. And those are, you know, emotions and memories and versions of me that don't fit that ideal. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings. Greetings to all of you. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie, uh, here with the Mythic Masculine podcast. And this is a special edition in that it's uh, being conducted live, which is uh, actually a first for, uh, for this podcast series. I'm delighted to be introducing our guest here in a moment. Uh, and uh, we'll launch into the conversation very soon. But uh, as this is also live, for those of you that have decided to tune in and offer your, your comments and your questions uh, alongside the conversation, feel free to do so uh, yeah, in, the, in the player, and we'll see that here, and we'll try to weave it in as best we can uh, into, our, into our conversation live. Without further ado, I am delighted to welcome my guest today, Dr. Nicholas Powers. Uh, who is the author of The Ground Below Zero, 9-11 to Burning Man, New Orleans to Darfur, Haiti to Occupy Wall Street, published by the Upset Press. He is a poet and an associate professor of English at SUNY, if I say that correctly, Old Westbury with writings in Truthout, HuffPost, Alternate, and The Independent. Uh, welcome, Dr. Nicholas Powers. Good morning, Ian. We, we, you and I are looking both very mythic and very masculine, so... <laughs> So it's perfect. I uh, I love to start my conversations with uh, just an ask of the guests to share a little of uh, where they are in this moment, you know, geographically, spiritually, just to attune uh, the listeners to, yeah, to to that sense. On a GPS map, I'm in Brooklyn, New York. On a heart map, I am in a temple of fatherhood hmm. and uh, building memory by memory, a, a nest and a foundation for my son. So it feels good. And emotionally, also in a city that's uh, constant waves uh, going through the city of New York, waves of uh, expectation of the summer, shorter, you know, shirts and dresses and shoes and sandals. Also waves of anxiety. A shooting happened on 36th Street subway. Mm. And... So emotionally, that's where where I'm at. Well, thank you. Welcome. And I, I really love that phrase, temple of fatherhood. 
that's something uh, we both share as well. Yeah, we I think we established in our previous conversation that uh, both have young children. I think you just the one so far, I believe the young, yeah, yeah maybe four years so old, far. four years old. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. And uh, those listeners may know that yeah, my son is a uh, three and a half, yeah. and uh, yeah, just getting even more rambunctious. Uh, <laughs> I was grateful to to reach out to you uh, to this to have this conversation after I came across your piece. Uh, this is in Lucid News, uh, which I uh, just track, you know, from time to time in the different uh, spheres of, of of news and inquiry. And this particular piece really caught my eye for a number of reasons. Uh, it was published in late March, and it's called "Can Psychedelic Masculinity Stop War?" Mm. And you know, there's something arresting, certainly in that, or something at least curious. It made me want to lean in. And uh, having uh, read the piece, I was appreciating how much you actually managed to weave of many of the themes actually that I've touched here in this podcast over the last you know two years or so. Um, and uh, first, I'd love to ask you, what was the inspiration behind the piece? You know, what was it that said, okay, you know, I have to write this? Attention in my heart after the U- Ukraine, after Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And as I was walking through the streets, I was looking at the buildings and a flash illuminated my imagination. And it was as if all the newsreels were superimposed on Cambridge. And I could imagine the buildings that I was walking next to. And, you know, this is next to Harvard University. These are very old, you know, 19th century buildings, many of them are historic sites. And I could see rockets blasting them apart. I could see people running, cowering in fear of the next mortar shell. And it struck me that the same terrifying passions that have erupted in violence in Russia's military and leadership against the people of the Ukraine, those passions are human passions. And they're right here around me and they're right inside of me, that we're not that far away. And I began to feel this other tension that here was this war that was erupting and millions of people were fleeing across the borders. And yet in Boston and Cambridge and New York, in LA, almost every single day or every week, every month, there's a psychedelic something talking about transformational this, transformational that. You know, is sex better on mushrooms? Uh, can psychedelics heal depression? Um, has the corporatization of psychedelics gone too far? You know, just you could, it's like a word salad. And it seemed that the rhetoric of the psychedelic renaissance of healing and transformation became increasingly empty to me when I realized that what was ravaging the planet was right there in front of my face was war. And how does a psychedelic Renaissance, which sells itself as this great healing modality, um, address that. And so I began to feel the need to write this essay. Thanks for those. Uh, You know, I'm curious, what was your introduction to psychedelics? Actually, if we could just go back there, because obviously this is a a strong theme for you. And um, yeah, I'd love to hear that story. I think they started off with the movie The Doors, like in the 1990s, I think, Oliver Stone. I was in uh, uh, high school, and I remember the movie came out, and doing LSD in front of hundreds of thousands of people dancing around a fire when you were wearing leather pants seemed like a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and then 
uh, before that, my mom, you know, uh, who recently passed, uh, told me about her trips with Acid back in the 60s, uh, you know, in New York. She was part of the, you know, she kind of floated in between the Young Lords and the anti-Vietnam War movement and the Black Panthers. And, you know, she was just in, in the mix. And um, she took LSD a couple of times and felt like her brain had been uh, strapped to a rocket ship and sent out to space. So, you know, I had heard about psychedelics long before I did them. And then, so when I got to college, the first time I took psychedelics, I wasn't just taking LSD. I was really taking a whole mythology of the 1960s and how I was supposed to experience LSD and what I was supposed to, you know, feel and see on it and smell and taste on it. And some of it was true, you know, the, uh, the lights, the, the way that people's faces seem to melt like wax, but never quite, you know, mm. uh, never quite go away. Uh, the trails. So it looked like an everyday light bulb was a Halley's Comet. But uh, I also had to unlearn some of the 60s mythology and actually re-experience psychedelics on my own. And so I did a lot of mushrooms and LSD and, and, and you know, in college and went to raves and partied and dance and had long conversations with other people who were very curious in reading and exploring ideas and we would just sit on the actually stand on the on a on a balcony and talk from midnight to sunrise and you know just you know our words just seemed to be casting a spell and it was beautiful and then i would say the the part where psychedelics became healing the second part of a three-part journey was um yeah i was in new york during 9 11 the year after that's my first time at burning man and i took psychedelics there it's the first time that I guess Sigmund Freud would call the wild psychoanalysis, but basically just psychedelics were like these two big hands. And I was like, a, mm. my body was a sponge and it just squeezed 9-11 out of my body. And I, and I came back from Burning Man uh, clean. And I would say the third part, the last part of my journey with psychedelics is uh, kind of being recruited into the psychedelic renaissance as a, as a speaker and primarily on race. And I think because the psychedelic renaissance is very white and I would say skews middle to upper class. And so there is a certain kind of class and race blind spot and tension and guilt and apprehension and realizing that there was some bridge building I could make. And, but then also kind of realizing that, you know, my role in psychedelics, the Renaissance has to change because I can't just be a token for the next like 30 years. Uh, I think I would mm -hmm. go, not only is it politically a dead wall, a dead end alley, but also just I would just get bored. So um, now I'm kind of transforming into something else with psychedelics. I'm not quite sure what it is yet. Mm -hmm. I appreciate yeah, a lot of that imagery as well being squeezed or 9-11 being squeezed out of you. You know, I, I, I think I maybe I'm hearing the, the shades of the elements of the how it can alchemize trauma. As well, mm. right? How the, how the use of psychedelics, which is yeah, something certainly I think we'll we'll touch on in a little bit. Um, I want to go back to your piece now, the uh, the essay in question, and um, I'm going to read just a phrase here. To this is near the opening because I think it sets up the the sort of approach of the piece and weaving some of these threads. Uh, Russia's war in Ukraine brings into focus a crisis in masculinity that has been ongoing in Yemen, Mexico, the Northern Triangle of Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nigeria, and now the Ukraine. Violence has washed the planet in a tide of blood. Theocratic states cut down women's rights. Rising authoritarianism threatens democracy. What must non-patriarchal men do? 
In the counterculture, psychedelic masculinity has long challenged militarism. Uh, as entheogen-enhanced therapies enter the mainstream, they can link up with pre-existing elements of progressive culture. We've long seen men's groups, 12-step programs, artists, gay, trans, and anti-war movements include men protesting patriarchy. That psychedelic masculinity can bear witness to the cost of male supremacy and imagine freedom beyond it. Hmm. That's a, I, like, I like that phrase. And I'd love for you to unpack that a bit, how you mean now with these sort of collisions happening. Uh, psychedelic masculinity can bear witness to the cost of male supremacy and imagine freedom beyond it. When psychedelics opens the windows in my mind and opens the doors that were locked, doors that were on my eyes, um, doors that were on my mouth, and I can experience deeper levels of myself because the talking ego, the linguistic-based ego that is deeply connected with the language, the history that we're all tied in like a spider's web, dissolves. Mm. And I fall out of that web of language away from this kind of language spider that captures and spins us all into these little husks. I fall out of that and I fall deeper inside of myself. And when I fall deeper inside of myself, I don't encounter darkness. I actually encounter older images of me that in a kind of paradox are actually younger images of me or images of me when I was younger. And I encounter alternate lives, mm-hmm. things that I could have said and done that would have changed the course of my life. I encounter relationships that I have forgotten or suppressed. Um, I encounter hurts that are like stains and bruises on the inside of my soul that I haven't really healed yet. They just are just papered over. And as I go inside of myself, I I realize that I am much larger than this one image of a ideal man. And that the ideal man that is a, a socially valuable image that a lot of us have branded on our brains is, you know, almost like that Spartan warrior with the shield and the spear and the helmet. You know, he's very, uh, he's ever ready to fight, ever ready to defend, ever ready to claim more space, claim more territory. And that, that image is like a bottleneck. And within me, there's this whole other reality. And I realized that for me to have a healthier relationship to my authentic inside, my interior world, that I have to break that bottleneck and able to express more fully who I am. And those are, you know, emotions and memories and versions of me that don't fit that ideal. And it's not just me. And I think that's where I began to see men's groups, uh, men who participate in me too movement men who participate in uh the slut march was in 2011 uh men who participate in the anti-war uh protests from the anti-iraq war to i'm sure what's gonna obviously already the the russian invasion of the ukraine trans men and gay men cis men and straight men who all participate in uh movement and marches for equal rights for gay people and lesbians so what the reality is, is that there's so many of us who have a full spectrum of masculinity, but the pain, one of the sources of pain in our life is that we have to channel it through a very small bottleneck 
of what it means to be a man. Mm -hmm. And part of what I think psychedelics has done for me is to shatter the bottle and to just smash it on the ground and allow for the, the, the rest of me to come out. Mm. I, uh, I love that image as well. Yeah, shattering the bottle. Um, there's a line in your piece, actually, which I think touches in on this. Uh, it says you're, you're quoting Dr. Will Siu, I believe, if that's the right yeah. name. Yeah, and uh, Siu says, uh, when we don't have the freedom to embody our authenticity, separation begins. Mm-hmm. These splits are caused by culture, school, family, religion, etc. Uh, when it does not feel whole, the masculine expresses itself violently. Uh, psychedelics help you embody your wholeness. They are a tool to aid our self reintegration. I really want to just touch it on that as well, that this, uh, when, when we don't have the freedom to embody our authenticity, separation begins. Um, that's fascinating to me too. I mean, it mirrors in my own experience as well, of course, that, you know, a lot of the unconscious programming on how to express in a ways that is seen still as, yeah, still as masculine or still maybe less so, um, overtly, Look, being looked to for always having it together or, you know, like, like, is it uh, one that's more of a, yeah, a certain caretaker or a certain provider, you know, these kinds of archetypes that are, have been strong for me. And so through the experience of psychedelics, yeah, absolutely being able to kind of unfold a bit more and be like, oh, wow, that's part of me too. And oh, wow, that's part of me too. I mean, I, I've long sort of understood uh, as I look out at the, you know, sea of mayhem and carnage that, um, at least in this cultural paradigm, often men will do anything else they can than feel. Mm. Maybe that's maybe that's one way to say it. That that oftentimes there's this like because feeling itself is like whoa that's like generally a no go right. So it's either you know numbing or I know often there's this link uh, very well known in, in men's circles to to shame and violence. Right, mm. that men men often will feel instead of feel shame, right, and and sort of really allow the shame to come in, they'll often express it as violence or aggression, uh, as a you know as an avoidance tendency, mm-hmm. and and yeah, I mean you're nodding your head there, um, and so I thir- I certainly think yeah that's absolutely the case in this um, possibility of of psychedelics, yeah, smashing the bottle, uh, I think is apt, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that bottleneck. I, I mean I've I've seen it my whole life, and you know and I'll. So just to say something that may kind of rub some of the listeners the wrong way, I think there are some virtues in being able to get the job done, whatever that job is, and to have to sacrifice your own comfort, sometimes even your life, um, to do something that helps others, saves others' lives, and protects and provides. But then you have to acknowledge emotional reality that with that can come along a lot of uh, scar tissue inside the man mm-hmm. and uh, shame or trauma. And that's part of that's price. That's the price of admission. But, you know, that ideal, though, I think is a legacy of patriarchy that shows up over and over and over again. And and I've seen that image my whole life. I mean, literally from something as as odd as like Popeye eating spinach and beating the shit out of Brutus to, (laughs) you know, uh, growing up with like and again, other generations won't know this, but literally G.I. Joe, which is. I, you know, a cartoon that basically was a commercial for the Pentagon, you know, like a, an elite U.S. American military team that defeats this kind of oriental terrorist group called Cobra. And, you know, they're flying mm-hmm. F-14 jets and tanks. And, you know, I mean, it's just it was just constant. 
And I look at what the kids are growing up now. Again, elite American military teams fighting some, you know, now it's more Arabic or it's going to be Russian now. They're the new bad guys or old bad guys made new. And over and over again, you see the image of the warrior, the image of the soldier. And that is the emphasis on that, the spotlight on that, on the warrior, so that the light caresses the armor and highlights the blood on the face and the blood on the knuckles and the scars on the cheek, all the marks of, of war. It highlights that. And then we are like attracted like moths to a flame to that warrior image. And But the reality is that men are doing lots of other things other than going to war and killing other men. We're fathers, we're caretakers, we're teachers, sometimes we're nurses, <laughs> you know? where some of us are trans, some of us are gay, some of us are bi, some of us are straight. Like there's a whole spectrum of men who are not shooting Cobra, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and I think that, that that spotlight on the Spartan warrior is really an inheritance of, you know, thousands of years at this point of patriarchy and how that is seen as like the top ideal, you know, version of men. Now, the point that I make in the piece which seems really clear to me, especially as a kid from the 80s. Um, look, I, I, my childhood was filled with dreams of war and not not the romantic image of like I was Alexander the Great or I was not that I was, you know, Popeye or not that I was G.I. Joe. It was actually a, a much more terrifying vision of war, which is that one day I would wake up and there would be a nuclear mushroom cloud outside of my window. Because mm -hmm. when I was growing up in the 80s, the Soviet Union was a real fucking deal. And they had nuclear missiles pointed at us. I think they still do. And we have <laughs> missiles pointed at them. And I grew up with movies like The Day After Tomorrow, uh, which is documented what would happen if a nuclear war hit. And so I grew up with very clear images of a nuclear holocaust that would wipe out all of mankind. You know, And I think my generation was probably the last one that grew up with that fear because I think it was like 91, 92, the Soviet Union collapsed and it became the Russian Federation. And so the the drumbeat of fear of a nuclear holocaust receded into the background, but not for me. <laughs> you know, I remember that. And so when I see war happening now in the Ukraine-Russia invasion, I can't help but realize that these thousands of years of patriarchy have led us to the point where the weapons that we that men use to kill other men now can kill all of life. And I don't think that winning or losing this particular war is worth life on the planet Earth. So to me, there seems to be a very simple equation that comes out of this, which is that patriarchy is putting life on our planet at risk. And that it goes beyond feeling guilt as a man for patriarchy. That's necessary. It goes beyond just feeling our wounds as men from patriarchy. Now it means we have to mobilize in a very organized and, and deliberate and focused way on dismantling the very system that created us. Again, this is not about self-flagellation. It's not about, you know, walking in front of something with a big whip and whipping ourselves. It's, it's simply about acknowledging a very basic truth that mm -hmm. The system of patriarchy, maybe when we had, you know, swords and spears, crossbows and maces. OK, you know, maybe we could afford a war, but it wouldn't devastate the whole planet. But our technology has now made patriarchy obsolete. 
And um, the final thing I would say is that I think for the upcoming cultural turn, one thing that men have to do is begin to mobilize to dismantle patriarchy and institute at least on the level of government, not on every level, but at least on the level of government, we may have to start instituting or at least promoting and, and aiding and supporting a matriarchy as what we may need to survive having advanced technology that could so easily, when used for war, wipe out the planet. You know, there's a, a number of threads I'd love to unpack a bit. You know, one, I'm glad you spent a bit of time, too, on on naming the the construct of patriarchy. And for me, especially on the conversations on the podcast I've had with a number of guests, you know, they've they've brought a nuance to that to try to help understand at least more clearly what people are saying or, or tend to say, right, when that phrase is used. Because I think a, as shorthand, it can be um, in some sense too narrow, right, to actually understand like what are the factors that are actually contributing to, um, like you said, destruction of life on the planet. Uh, you know, I in the article, you, you define it sort of shorthand as a society of male domination in politics and economics and everyday custom. And um, yeah, I think that's a, a fair... Uh, articulation. I've been really moved by the work of Rianne Eisler, who you mm-hmm. may have read some of her stuff, right? Chalice in the Blade. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and that, that was her, uh, uh, I think, sort of groundbreaking take on being able to separate, um, you know, instead of using this sort of patriarchy uh, construct, she used domination culture versus partnership culture. Mm. which yeah which i was and others you know it's since become obviously like sort of a a classic in that regard but that to me is found i found really compelling because what it what it's able to do is show that the the constructs of domination or for example like what kind of behaviors what kind of male behaviors are venerated and upheld and and uh, rewarded right within a society of domination versus partnership and she you know goes back through history and looks at uh, many cultures including some of the uh, existent partnership ones. She goes to uh, Crete a lot, right? The the sort of I think it was the Minoan mm-hmm. culture uh, as an example of actually like a deep and rich partnership culture. Um, and so, you know, you because you also posited the, a sort of counterbalance to patriarchy's matriarchy, and and you know I might surmise based on what you've shared that a, a sort of having well that would conjure a kind of female dominated culture. Right. If, if, mm-hmm. if patriarchy is a sort of male dominated, then matriarchy is a, a female dominated. And one, I believe, um, based on other, you know, conversations I've had and other researchers, I don't know if there's ever actually been a, a matriarchal culture mm-hmm. that's ever existed. Right. And yeah, if we, if we mean a sort of women dominated versus there's been numerous partnership cultures, uh, as well as there's been, I understand, uh, a lot of indigenous cultures are matrilineal. Mm-hmm. Right. As in like they'll, the, the, yeah, the sort yeah. of, yeah, the, the line of will reside within the female line. And it, certainly, you know, I'm thinking of another guest, uh, who's a Mohawk, I believe he spoke about how the, the, uh, sort of council, right. The council of power within the community is often held by the grandmothers, right. For example, um, who would tell, you know, the chief, they'd say the chief would check with the grandmothers, right. And be like, Hey, should I, you know, should I do this or not? Uh, it, which wouldn't constitute a, matriarchal structure but it would actually constitute though a certain degree of heft and power and orientation that would come from in this case the elder women um which is beautiful so anyway i just wanted to introduce that as well because i find oftentimes it's sort of 
shuts down, uh, depending on who you're speaking to, right? The sense of, so are you shaming fathers, right? If you're talking about patriarchy, because mm-hmm. in its, in its sort of mythic origin, of course, that, that, that's what it means is the, the rule of the father as opposed to like the rule of men. Uh, Rian Eisler uses the phrase androcracy, I believe it is, uh, right? Andro meaning man, uh, versus patriarchy again as the separation of the father. Because the last thing I'll say about this is it's also a kind of wound that the most delinquency by men or the most uh, sort of telling factors that make men more prone to violence and more prone to, yeah, to acting out or hostility is an absent strong male father figure mm-hmm. in their life. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so yep. in that sense as well, yeah, it becomes a kind of, yeah, it becomes a, a sort of important nuance. And anyway, I, I've laid out a number of factors here, but I'm curious what you take on that. Yeah. yeah introducing a distinction between uh, patriarchy and domination culture and then positing, you know, matriarchy and partnership culture, it, it strikes me as useful. And it strikes me as someone hearing that may not have a reflexive gag reflex, like, oh, now I'm going to be ruled by women, right? Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so I hope that that, would make it easier for people to imagine something dramatically different than what we have now. Because right now in our functioning domination culture, patriarchy, or some mix of them, the reality that we see is there is the, the, the kind of the image of the, the warrior, which is the, still the ideal. And that that, image of the warrior gets reflected through it a thousand different versions, like the CEO, the Titan of industry, mm-hmm. the MMA fighter, um, you know, the corporate rapper, um, you know, just all the different versions of that same Spartan warrior that just gets reflected and refracted through the contemporary cultural prism. Mm-hmm. But then on the other side, because of the history of colonization, because of the history of class warfare, uh, because of the history of racism, because of the history of um, that you have whole communities in which their families and the land have been destroyed. And so lots of boys becoming men are growing up in the absence of strong fathers. And one book that is a really good, clear example of this is I just taught Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. He talks about being raised in South Africa right before the end of apartheid. And because of uh, the white supremacist regime there had a lock on the best jobs, but still needed manual and menial labor. A lot of the African South African black South African men would leave their homes for extended periods of time, months, maybe even years and work far away from the home. So their kids would grow up only with the women in the neighborhood. Mm. And I see this here in New York where, when I go to the bodegas, a lot of the Yemeni men who work the bodegas, don't see their families sometimes for months or even a year. And then finally, when I was, uh, again, when I was in Cambridge, I remember driving, uh, I remember I was in a a lift and I was talking to the driver who was Brazilian and I was telling him about my son and, you know, just, you know, all the shenanigans he gets into. And the Brazilian driver told me, oh, his son, who's 23, he hadn't seen him for 10 years. The last time he saw him physically when he was 13. And, you know, they kept in touch with Facebook and, you know, Duo. You know, so it wasn't like a total cutoff. You know, he had a virtual relationship with his son. But when he saw his son, his son was 13. You know, that gangly, you know, spindly little 
awkward 13 year old stage before puberty really hits. And now his son was 23 and he was a personal trainer. So he was like jacked up, you know, and he's like, my son's a man, you know, and you, I, I heard in his voice and he said pretty explicitly that, you know, now he has to change the way he sees his son. He's not a kid anymore. He's a man. He has to address him as such. But he said, you know, I grew up not ever really hitting or yelling at my son because that's what my father did to me. And then when he, when this driver talked with his brother, they both talked about their father and their father would tell them stories about his father. So their grandfather and how his father, the grandfather would beat them and hurt and, and, and beat him and even worse. And so it seems like the further back you go in time, a lot, the more violent fathering was. And so, you know, the reality is, is that we have a, a kind of worldwide generation of boys who aren't with their fathers and then fathers who are trying to recover from their fathers. And so we desperately need a much healthier version version of masculinity. And on one level, that's a cultural change that is slowly happening as people begin to realize what the real consequences of trauma are. But then there's a whole other level, which is a class level. Uh, it's a level of supporting families so that fathers don't have to be so far away. It's a level of uh, supporting the poor and the working class so that there's less stress in their life because stress oftentimes goes downhill. It's like water. It goes to the lowest point. So when people are stressed out, they don't usually fight against their boss. Sometimes they beat their kids. So what, what has to happen is that there has, there has to be a, a, a vision where we take into account. Yeah, there's a cultural aspect. But there's also a political and economic aspect of a new masculinity um, and that people are kind of, you know, really kind of stumbling in the dark sometimes for this, you know, and, you know, once in a while they get like a, a, a small something to hold on to, like a men's group, and they hold on to it for dear life because this is their one rope of life that can ho- hopefully pull them out of a, of a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that what we're seeing is a deep hunger for breaking that image, but then also having real material support so that the culture of men can change away from domination culture to a more partnership culture, which last point is I think actually what most men really want. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's beautiful. Um, you know, I'm acknowledging uh, there's a couple of questions too. I'm going to weave in here in the moment. And one of the threads I just want to touch in on, on this, um, you know, relationship to fathering and domination. I mean, in our prior conversation that we touched in on in prep for this, you know, we did bring up, or you did bring up the Will Smith, uh, Chris Rock slap. And oh, yeah, yeah. yeah what, but what I'm reflecting on now is that um, uh, I understand in the film where Will has, uh, he plays the father, I believe, right, of, uh, of the tennis player sisters. Yeah, the Williams sisters, yeah. The Venus Williams sisters, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, I haven't seen the film yet, but I, I suspect, of course, that the father perhaps is, you know, is held up in, in high esteem. I mean, to I'm sure he's yeah. a complex character as well. Yeah. But um, so here we have Will, who's playing the father, who in this moment in the Oscars where, you know, a, a joke lands poorly and, you know, his, he feels like his, his wife is insulted uh, rather than be with the feeling right of like, oh, wow, I'm feeling shame. I mean, there's lots of theories on you know, was he uh, flashed back to his own youth where he d- couldn't protect his own mother from, yeah, yeah, you know, right. things like that. So, but rather than feel that into, into sense like, oh, wow, you know, like shame's coming up in me or whatever it is, you know, he goes over and then dominates. And, you know, you can see it in this lane, uh, in this lens now, I think dominates Chris Rock, 
you know, with a slap in this case, um, which is like the rawest expression of uh, that dynamic at work, right? I think of this disconnection from oneself, in this case as a man, to like fully feel those parts, but instead of fully feel them, to externalize it in this case and dominate, you know, the the perpetrator in this case in that moment, which was Chris. Um, and in some ways, it feels like it perhaps fused a kind of... Uh, break of almost like the nobility of the father in this case, right? Who once again sort of is betrayed by, in this case, Will, who played the father and is now resorting to domination in this case in, in the moment of deep spectacle, you know, around the planet. So it's just interesting to now connect those dots, I see, uh, you know, with this conversation threads that we're touching on. Yeah, I, I think the one thing that that I think is, has been missing so far from the reaction and so that slap heard around the world which for a minute like actually dominated news headlines even from the U- the ukraine i almost think like did vladimir putin like spike will smith's drink so this way he can get the get people stop talking about the ukraine because for like like a whole week he could just bomb ukraine no one would notice because you know everyone's like damn did you see what will smith did to chris rock and i can see vladimir putin going <laughs> you know and um yeah, I just I was like, did did Will Smith get like a shitload of rubles, you know, in his bank account? Um, so, but so there's that. But you know, I think what what was the main reaction was actually at first, um, I think Tiffany Hat has Hashisha. I forgot Hashish. Let's people smoke that. But uh, she's the the comedian, right? And a couple of others came out saying, "I'm so glad that Will Smith defended a black woman." And because of the history, the structural history of violence on black women, obviously from slavery, mass rape, stealing children away, killing uncles and brothers and fathers, sons and husbands. Right. And then after slavery, the era of, you know, the black codes, segregation, Jim Crow, um, which was and the chain gang system, which was slavery, but just slightly less degree. Right. So still an incredible amount of violence, both sexual violence, but violence against the family. And then basically all the way up until the modern era of mass incarceration. So I think when I saw those um, Hedish, Tiffany Hedish, when I saw her and other people saying, finally, a black woman was defended in public, I understand the deep historical well of pain from which that sentiment was drawn up. Um, and then there was a lot, obviously, you know, some um, comments saying, you know, that Will was suffering from a traumatic flashback. Right. So there was that. Um, I didn't see it that way. I actually, it just seemed to me actually like kind of an act of bullying because, uh, you know, Will Smith is 6'2", Chris Rock is like 5'10", which is like not particularly short. It's just medium size. But he's like a buck 50, buck 60 soaking wet. And Will Smith is, you know, like 200 plus pounds and he trained to be Ali in a movie. So it's just, it didn't, it didn't like he wasn't, I mean, my friends were joking. We're like, if The Rock, Dwayne Johnson had made that joke, I think Will Smith would have just sat the fuck down. You know what I mean? <laughs> or if Mike Tyson was just like, I think Jada's hair is ludicrous <laughs> and made some stupid joke, Will Smith would have been like, Jada, I guess we're just going to have to sit this one out. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I think it was going. But I think the, the part that's relevant to our conversation, aside from the kind of comedic hypocrisy of that moment, was that when I saw from an angle Jada laughing when, when Smith came back from slapping Chris Rock, right? That, that to me was a sign of patriarchal womanhood. And um, one of the classes that I teach is black women writers for the past 10 years. And I am so grateful for that class because it's opened me to a whole literature of feminist analysis on the different levels of how patriarchal women have also support patriarchy. 
Now, whether that's in the brothels of, you know, um, in India, whether that's on, you know, I'm reading my body, uh, the, the most recent uh, book by the supermodel, Emily Ratajusko, I think her name is. I think I'm mis- mispronouncing that. Um, but she talks about the, the how patriarchy works even on a on a video soundstage with Robin Thicke and Farrell and T.I. Mm. And she was one of the models there. And Robin Thicke grabbed her breast, but then eventually she made the decision to let it slide because she just wanted to kind of keep it going and make the money and not lose her place. And so there's different levels where uh, women have internalized patriarchy and then actually reinforce patriarchy within their men. And so, or, you know, the men in their lives. And so when Jada laughed and then the kind of like, I think they touched heads, you know, almost like two seals <laughs> touching heads uh, after, after he came back. Um, and instead of really, I think what she should have done was just jump up and like grab his hand and, and pull him back down and be like, chill. Uh, like I'm a tough woman. That was a, not even really a bad joke. It was a dumb joke, whatever. I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. Don't blow not only your moment, but everyone else's moment for something that's not worth it. It wasn't it was not a vulgar joke. He didn't physically assault me. Uh it wasn't a sexual joke. Um he didn't stain my honor. Like just chill. Chill the fuck out, you know. And I wish that that's what have happened. Uh but I think what happens is the other half of patriarchy is patriarchal men, but it's also patriarchal women who then have bought into it and are attached to that and then want their men to act in a patriarchal way. Um, because that's they have a place within it of privilege. Yeah, you know, you bring up actually a really um, element too. I want to bring in now, and again, I am tracking the questions, so don't worry, we'll we'll be able to weave them in. Um, but you you talk about uh, this line too, which is something again we've explored here in the podcast. But uh, you say the ideology that drives patriarchy in turn creates the split screen vision of women as either Madonna or whore, either good, sexually pure. Uh, and domestic or bad, fallen, and independent. Um, I would love for you to now unpack that a bit, as in how is it that this, uh, you know, again, if we're somewhat interchangeably now, patriarchy or domination culture, how mm-hmm. does that create the split? Because I have, yeah, a number of other threads and conversations I've had as well, and I'd love for you to, to speak a bit to that because you've included it in your essay, and so obviously it's something you've been tracking as well. Yeah, um, so I would say the the overlap between patriarchy and domination culture. And to use a very, you know, old fashioned kind of like Marxist analysis of base and superstructure, if you have, if patrilineal culture passes property and name, excuse me, down through the male name, down through the male last name. And, um, you know, that is the basis of wealth being transferred from generation to generation. And so that's the the economic base, say, of patriarchy or, or patriarchal domination culture. Then. Rising from that economic base, you need a culture that justifies it, that is spread through whatever media is available, clay tablets back in the ancient world, cell phones today. And images of gender roles are transmitted into our brains via storytelling around fires, cell phones, TVs, newspapers, whatever the medium is. But the function is that the culture has to spread an ideology that justifies the economy. And so if you have um, property passed down through the male line and you, you want to make sure that, you're, that the children who inherit that property are your kids, then you want an ideology that controls women's sexuality. Right. 
it, it allows free reign to a little bit, which is the double, the origin of the double standard that men can, in a patriarchy, can have mistresses, et cetera, on the side, but women have to have their wombs on lockdown because in a patriarchy, you want to make sure that whoever has your name and your title and your property is really your kid. So that's the culture that's on the, the, the basis of the, you know, that justifies the economy. That's the base uh, culture, superstructure, Marxist, you know, analysis. And that's like really old hat. That's, there's nothing new about that. But what that does then is it creates an image of women as the good woman. Woman is a woman who's in, in the house, who's very domesticated, uh, who's sexually pure until marriage, who generally only has sex either to service her husband or to procreate, have kids. So that is the ideal good woman. And then obviously the, the pinnacle of that is the mother. And then mothering professions like daycare, teaching, nursing, et cetera, those are considered like the respectable good women, good woman kind of professions, right? Now, again, this is a little bit old-fashioned. Waves of feminism have helped dislodge us from that extreme form of domination patriarchy, but a residue of it still holds. And then, of course, the bad woman is the quote-unquote woman who is sexually free, independent, has her own money, and can can design her life the way she chooses without interference from men. And it may even go so far as to keep her own last name and keep her property, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, in between those two poles of the good woman and, you know, the bad woman, there's all these, you know, degrees within it. There's the damsel in distress. And we see that, which is a, a weak woman who must be rescued by Superman or Batman who charges into a warehouse and kills a bunch of, you know, thugs who have slightly Eastern European accents always for some reason. <laughs> and, um, and he's armored up. The image of armor for the man is very important. So Superman's skin is armored because he's, you know, transformed by the yellow sun into becoming a Superman. Batman has his high tech, rich playboy armor, right? So that protects him. Um, Iron Man literally has armor on, you know? So all of these men, Captain America has a shield. The Hulk is the Hulk. Anyway, they all have these armor and they all rescue damsel in distresses, usually women who are weaker or innocent, like a mom um, or a partner, and they rescue them. Uh, there's the fallen woman archetype, you know, a woman who has, you know, had sex with numerous people and is considered fallen or degraded in some way. Um, you know, so I mean, these are just classic and these exist in literature. I teach literature. That's my bread and butter. So you see these repeating all over. But once you teach literature, you see that in, in cinema and in TV series and web series all the time. It's the same, same thing. So that's the culture on top of the economic base of patriarchy. Um, and I think the final thing is to ask, well, you know, well, where are we at, you know, in the U.S.? And the U.S. is, is I would say, a kind of moderate patriarchy. In other words, that, you know, if you're going to be politically relevant, you have to be able to draw distinctions. And there are some places which are very extreme patriarchies like Saudi Arabia, where I think women just got the right to drive a couple of years ago. Um, and it's a, still a very, you know, theological patriarchal culture. And then there's the U.S., which has a residual culture of patriarchy. Legally, some of the worst patriarchal laws have been changed and struck down. And there have been some, because of the waves of feminism, there have been laws put in place to try to equalize some of the field. And then there are other places which are further ahead, like, say, you know, some of the Scandinavian countries, like I think like Norway, et cetera, which actually have, I think, progressed even further um, into having at least a more kind of partnership, not a matriarchy, but a partnership culture where there's more gender egalitarian 
dynamics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's the scene that we're at now. So when you ask about, you know, the, these images of of women that are kind of put on, you know, we we grow up with that. And so one of the things we have to unlearn as men who are trying to be progressive and trying to change the culture, because all of this is in, in, in a lot of ways kind of connected. And the ultimate goal is how do we keep life on the planet without like destroying ourselves? And if part of that work is not just external work, like actually dismantling, dismantling the military machine, dismantling the fossil fuel industry and ending poverty. If those are the three main things that progressive men have to do, then we also have to do, I think, internal work, which is, well, what are some of the ways that I've internalized patriarchy in my eroticism, mm-hmm. um, in my sense of how to raise my children, in my sense of my own body image? And how do I acknowledge who I really am versus, you know, the one kind of ideal version? Now, maybe maybe you are Paul Bunyan with the axe and the blue ox, you know, and babe, you know, and maybe you are a very kind of like a very militant or, you know, that kind of person. That's fine. But that's your authentic self. But you have to at least have the space to question who you really are rather than just instantly follow the kind of patriarchy machine. Mm. Yeah, thanks for that. This could be a good uh, segue into a question actually asked by uh, Jessica in terms of the actual uh, the usage of psychedelics and its uh, possible impact. Uh, Jessica says, in terms of using psychedelics for the purpose of healing, is it used as a continued therapy or lack of a better term, or can it happen after one use? I'd be curious, yeah, your own experience in terms of, in a sense, app applying that kind of internal dismantling right through mm-hmm. Successive experiences, or maybe you know you had a massive epiphany, and you know the first. I've heard the eighty twenty rule can also apply. Tell me, like you know, twenty percent is like the most, you know. But if you keep going back to the well, it can sort of be missing the point too. So anyway, I'd be curious to hear your take on it. Yeah, it's funny. I remember um, really agreeing with something that George Carlin said uh, when he was on the Chris Rock. So Chris Rock had like a show for like like two seasons, and one of his first guests was George Carlin. So obviously, he's calling in a favor. And George Carlin really went off the rails. He was like, "Yeah, I, I, I did LSD." And he goes, you know, LSD, I just did it a couple of times and, you know, I got it. And after that, I didn't really need it anymore. I was, I was good, you know, because I I saw it. I got, I got the point. So my experience was that even my first trip of, of LSD in college, it, it changed the course of my life, but it was like a small pebble down, you know, a gradient mountainside. Like it would gather more force as time went on. And I was never going to be the same personally for me after that first trip. But because I have to live in the default world, it would be easy for me to, for that epiphany, that realization to be diminished to the point of not being relevant anymore to my actual real material lived life, the actions that I take in physical life. And what I found is that once I took, um, actually it was LSD and ecstasy, MDMA, um, at Burning Man, the, the year after 9-11, it was 2002. That was really the first time that psychedelics had a healing reaction, had a he- had a healed me d- deeply. And so that was, that was a very particular set and setting. So I would say that continued use of psychedelics with a focused set and setting could, it increases the chances that the epiphany that one has becomes actions in one's life. Yeah, thanks for that. You know, I I feel called to do. Um, I could share a little bit about in this very context as well. That this is uh, not too long ago, actually, a few about a month ago. 
I was actually participated in a is a therapeutic three MMC ceremony, which um, yeah, if you're familiar with that, the, the listeners are. It's a I, th- I understand it's a derivation of MDMA or like very close to three MMC, and uh, the experience is very similar. It's, it's understood as an empathogen, right? Uh, the sense of that very heart opening. Mm. Um, not, not not so much a psychedelic in a sense, like you're not really you know seeing you know color shift and things like that necessarily, but just very much like this you know, blast open heart chakra kind of experience. Uh, but in this case, well, one, I should say I'm, I'm very familiar with MDMA in festival settings and, and even like uh, private, you know, ceremonies. Uh, in this case, it was in a therapeutic setting, first time with a, a therapist in this case, and secondarily with a men's group, mm. which was, which was unbelievably potent. And in this case, it was also a group that I have a lot of time in with. So mm. um, in this case, yeah, the therapist likes doing this with men's groups because one, they have a lot of uh, practice already with, you know, vulnerability, holding space, mm-hmm. um, just, yeah, t- trust, you know, mutual trust within the group. And uh, and so in that sense, it, it really rode in off that existent field uh, of support and the experience itself, yeah, was really just uh, incredible in the sense that, we, we sort of roamed uh, sort of collective support on each man as the, he was going through the peak. Right. So it was sort of, mm-hmm. sort of sta- staggered dosage. And, uh, and I'll just say, yeah, I mean, that what came online for, for the man, I mean, myself as well, in, in my experience was just, uh, yeah, it was deeply healing in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and I already, you know, I've been doing work with men since really 2015. So many years already. And I've been in spaces where different practices are used like bioenergetics or, um, gestalt you know therapy and so lots of other modalities certainly and yet this was the first time again within a men's setting and and a lot of the things that you've been talking about in terms of uh, being able to like reintegrate you know certain parts of my being or to mm-hmm. to relax or to surrender de-armor places too which i'm like oh wow, i didn't know i was still armored there was just so deeply profound and to do it with the men and within a field of men as well or, or you could say the field of, of of a masculine space and to touch really a, a deep quality of tenderness yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I would say, I would say overall was, was quite something. And so, um, I can't recommend that enough, actually, that, uh, you know, get that kind of like direct, uh, focused intention within a space, uh, ideally, yeah, with men who already have time in like that is, um, is an incredible example of a kind of format, I, I suppose, that I'm, yeah. you know, I, yes. I was just starting to experience that I was like, whoa, and it really made me think of your piece, actually, right? When I read it later, I was like, oh, wow, I can really see how this directly responds or 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 moves forward this uh, yeah, personal, but also cultural yeah, reformation, you know, and I'd love to hear yeah. more. Yeah, I think the, the, for me, the, absolutely what you're saying is beautiful. What you're literally the vision I get when you're when you're talking right now is like Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, where like the, the sidewalk is glowing under your mm. under the footsteps. I think like the next step is the the moving from the personal to the public in terms of men's groups saying that we as men recognize that we have inherited a legacy of patriarchy and that the patriarchy has created a bottleneck for our spirits. And so personally here, we can do the work of smashing the bottle, but we also recognize that patriarchy in the wider world beyond the circle is also threatening life on the planet with war Mm -hmm. has already created a whole kind of shadow economy 
of sex trafficking with quote unquote the bad throwaway working class poor village women often you know um you know being trafficked all throughout the world um and you know the levels of abuse from actual physical abuse to psychological to microaggressions that women have to deal with uh the me too movement has addressed that and then finally that uh under kind of a patriarchal or dominating capitalism which is basically the default economy around the world that's just a fact that there's an incredible amount of poverty and stress being thrown on on families in the in the fourth world the global south uh indigenous people around the world and so part of i think the next step is to say we have to start dismantling the patriarchy the dominating uh, patriarchal dominator you know culture and move beyond just breaking the bottleneck for us but be- breaking the what creates and recreates the bottleneck for every new generation and saying that you know this is no longer sustainable for our species or our planet and it doesn't mean we have all the answers right now but one of the answers that we can know is is the reality of our own existence that a lot of us are are hungering to break out of these these images you know and these roles and now it's not just about the lucky few who get into the circle but it's about how do we expand the circle so that more and more people are are born inside of it rather than stumbling into it through you know random friendships or internet or advertising or you know word of mouth that we get into these men's circles the men's circles has to increase its circle uh large enough so that it's almost like a sinkhole and the military industrial complex and capital and it just falls in and just mm-hmm you know, just collapses. It makes me think, uh, I, and I can't remember where I read this piece, but it was something, it was very much trying to um, aim at this spirit of, you know, it's one thing for, you know, so-and-so to, to experience, you know, psychedelics at a party or in a privileged setting. Um, but it's, an, and in some sense, it might have been Jamie Wheel, actually, I think, um, if you know his work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, but I think he, he mentioned, you know, it's actually, you know, we need like the construction workers to be doing this and the, you know, like really make it accessible to a lot of people who wouldn't quote normally do this, uh, but what with the appropriate set and setting. And I wonder if you might speak to that, like what kind of sort of, um, I, I don't want to call it about publicly funded, you know, initiative of, uh, yeah, I, or, I, think, or something. The, I think the, 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 the main institutions that create a domination patriarchy or domination culture. Um, obviously, it's the military, which, you know, recruits, obviously, from a lot of low income and working class, not only, but a lot working class, you know, neighborhoods and populations. It's the 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 discourse or the the images of, of the God of War, the you know, the very frightening, terrifying, you know, man who uses violence. And that just reappears. So that's almost kind of an intangible institution. It's just a, it's a narrative that reappears over and over again. Um, and then you have, you know, just institutions that recreate this patriarchy. Um, but, and yet I think the other institutions of progressive masculinity, which includes underneath that umbrella, psychedelic, psychedelic masculinity, as well as the full spectrum, both from trans to, to cis, uh, gay to straight, also uh, polyamory to monogamy, right? Like the whole spectrum of sexualities, both you know, your identity and what you practice. That's usually found more in the festival world, you know, because that's the reality. I mean, the medical model for psychedelics is what's entering it into the mainstream. But in terms of where men go to kind of finally like deconstruct some of their masculinity, it's more most often at the festivals. And the festivals actually are a pretty big part of global culture. 
So I think that one of the things has to be done is a two-pronged attack, which is on a cultural level and a political level. On a cultural level, let's say that these men's groups um, begin to proliferate and men start talking to other men. And they're like, look, we don't have to agree with everything, you know, in the progressive movement. But we have to at least acknowledge that, you know, especially for those of us are, as, as fathers, that we want our kids to live and we want a planet for them to live on. And men, brothers, we've been fucking up. And it's not really our, it's not just our, it's not our fault. We've inherited thousands of years of history. We've inherited the God of war and we reinvented him in Hollywood and Bollywood and Nollywood. And we reinvented him over and over again. And he's invented us and he's taken over our bodies. And it's led us to a place where people are scared of us. Women are scared of us. Our children can be scared of us. And the planet is terrified of what we can do to it. We need to pull back. We, we, men got to start talking to other men. So it's like, guys, we're, we're fucking off the chain now. Like, we really got to pull this shit back. And we got to talk to other men. It's, like, it's not about giving up your masculinity, but it's about being strong enough to overcome the the shame that winds up being expressed in violence and we need to have new ceremonies and new cultures and new images as a way of balancing out and finally dismantling some of this patriarchy mm-hmm. and maybe one of the ways we can do that is to have uh we got to start breaking different laws you know and the laws that we need to break is like we need to be able to have uh healing fire so that we have we have you know fires that we gather around and we invite other men to and we say guys we have to start burning some of this old patriarchy away to throw something into the fire that hurts you. Whether you scream it out, whether it's a confession, a testimony, whether it's something you did to hurt someone else or something someone did to hurt you, whether it's a badge, whether it's a flag, but throw it into the fire. We got to start, you know, and then having these wild healing fires around the country and inviting men, inviting men saying, this is the beginning of, of a healing fire that we got to start burning this stuff away. Um, and that's taking it beyond the festival. It's included within the festival, but it's starting to go beyond it. And, and men start talking to other men because in the end, women cannot end patriarchy. I'm sorry. They just can't. Only men can do that. Only men can really dismantle patriarchy because we're the ones who are both deeply scarred by it. And we're the ones who benefit the most from it. Mm-hmm. And I think um, finally, the thing is that it's not just about guilt. If you just offer men guilt, no one's going to do it except maybe a few of us who are raised Catholic. The, the thing that you really have to do is to give men a new mission. And one of the, the missions that I think this generation of men should embrace is, one, we have to clean up the planet. We have to dismantle the weapons. And then the last thing we need to do is that we need to take care of, we actually need to re- re- relearn what it's like to hold a very vulnerable life. We need to become fathers, not you know, actual fathers who actually hold a vulnerable life in its hand and, and learn by hearing that heartbeat on your chest of what it means like to actually be strong enough to take care of a, of a, of a life and, and learn from our fatherhood, learn from nature, what it means like to, to provide and protect for something that vulnerable. And I think what we realize is that when we encounter, this is my experience, when I encounter other fathers, most of the time we actually just want to help each other be good fathers. We're not like trying to compete because we know if we get into some stupid fight and hurt each other or kill each other, we're, our kids are going to be the ones who really suffer. Um, and also there's a joy in having children that we never even knew existed. And so when men become fathers, like the real fathers, there's this ecstatic joy. Like we wind up sharing stuff like I love it when my kids sleeping on my chest or I love when I'm 
when I'm, you know, we do stuff that's a little bit probably kind of crazy, but when I, when I push them down the stroller at like 24 miles an hour, like, like Olympic <laughs> running, and you just hope that you don't hit like a snag because your kid's going to jump like a catapult, like a circus cannon, like right out. You're like, oh, I broke my kid. We're like We do <laughs> shit like that, but it's fun. And and other fathers like, yeah, I do that stuff too, you know? And I think the joy of playing roughhousing, roughhousing is good, playing with new life teaches men both to enjoy their strength, their virility, but in a way that's helping life grow rather than destroying it, you know? And just kind of cueing brothers in. I was like, bro, like this whole war shit that we're doing, this whole like capitalist thing that we're doing that's hurting other guys. Why do we don't need to make life harder for some father in Guatemala because we're taking their land so that we have cheap mm-hmm. watermelons in our supermarket. Like we don't need mm-hmm. to do, that. you know, give them a fucking break. You know, like we don't need to do that. Let's let's try to make it easier for families all around the world and, and stop having people scared of us because it's a horrible thing to be a man walking around the world thinking that the privilege of my life comes from the terror of other people mm-hmm. yeah wow potent you know i appreciate the note about fatherhood as well as the the desire to share and to connect and i also steward a father's group here you know in my in my community and uh yeah it's incredible you know the stories that share the vulnerabilities yeah. the you know am i am i messing this up uh you know can i get another you know piece of feedback on this and uh just the joys yeah we often start our circle you know what's the joy this week of being a father and yeah. Yeah, just uh, it's so easy. It's so right there, the richness. Uh, so I absolutely appreciate that. Um, I think it's a good time to bring in this question from Ben as well, which is, um, can you speak to the variety of other models beyond the warrior heavy ideal of masculinity? You know, what ones have you discovered, you found through yeah, psychedelic use and through this exploration? Yeah, oddly enough, the, the one place I, I've discovered really interesting versions of masculinity, one is at the festival, right? And, mm-hmm. and one is um, the builder and provider. Right. So um, when I first started the POC camp, uh, the people of color camp, um, you know, the first two years, I basically built the camp by myself, you know, and it, and it was nothing to look at. It was, you know, really, it was like four poles and some camouflage netting thrown over it. I mean, it was rough. <laughs> this, this is Burning Man, you're saying? Yeah, this is Burning Man. Yeah, I was on the yeah. fly. I just like, it was literally imagine four poles and then, you know, obviously four, plo- four poles, you know, in a square on top of those. And then <laughs> camouflage thrown over. And I was and I, I was so proud. I thought I did like this amazing Taj Mahal thing. And, and, and other people of color came up. And like, I think they were like almost like, slightly ashamed for me. They're like, mm. now the next year they came and they built a real camp with shades. <laughs> but I remember there was this moment I had taken an edible and, and I was in the camp and some friends were coming over and then we were going to go out bike ride out to the playa. It was, you know, at night. And I just had my spotlight and I remember just, you know, sitting here like this in the, in the middle of the of my shitty little camp and but just feeling really proud of it. And then the next year, when more people came into the camp and they rebuilt it into a really beautiful you know, camp, I felt like a builder protector and a, a builder provider. And I think that's one of the images of men that instead of you know being a, a soldier who's trained to destroy property and to destroy life. I would actually like for the image of, of men to build things that are provide safety for new life and, and protect life. Um, and finally, the other thing is when I go to the Russian, Turkish, Russian hotspot in, in Manhattan and I go there, uh, uh, I think it's uh, there's one, one or a few times they have men only like two to three hour segments and they have women only as well. And when I go there and it's just men only, there's a lot of gay men there. Um, they usually go there on Monday or Sunday, I think, because they, you know, a lot of musical theater guys, um, and I, they massage each other. 
you know, and they just hold each other and they're like, oh, yeah, this this knot right here. And they're like, and they can actually. And the other thing I, I think that's good for men to do is to learn how to touch each other and to try to massage some of the emotional and physical knots out of each other. And it doesn't have to be sexual. It's not sexual. Like when the when the guys do it, they're not lovers. They're not they're not like jerking each other off or fingering each other's assholes. They literally just they're just massaging each other's. But they're doing it because they care about each other. You know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an act of care, tenderness. And I think that one of the things that straight men can do is just learn how to just touch each other a little bit more um, and not worrying that you're going to get penetrated or that you're gay or not worry. Not, don't worry that you're worried about it. Just enjoy that um, there's different ways that, that we can be OK with each other. And it, and, and it actually um, opens up. So I think the other one is, is kind of like a healer of men's bodies. Be a man who it's OK to. Um, to really like, you know, dig into the foot with your, with your thumbs and get that and help that guy out. Um, Mm -hmm. and one of the other ways I think, and this is the last thing I'll say about this is, uh, towards the end of my mom's life, she was getting really hard for her to walk around. And basically I, I was helping her walk everywhere and her walker and and getting her food and cooking food for her and just being a, a provider. And I think that was probably the greatest you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm relatively healthy. I work out. I'm not like a gym queen, but I, you know, I work out and I run and the, I never felt a greater glory than when I helped my mom get up the stairs or when I held my, or when I helped my son get dressed and it felt like my body was, was doing something beautiful for other people. So I think one thing that maybe the other image aside from the builder protector is uh the healer and and actually like the the strong support be a strong support for people who are physically weaker you know people who are disabled people who are old and the very young like use your strength to support them because that's what really you're supposed to do like support them you know mm-hmm. and and a- accept that that role is part of shifting away from a destructive masculinity to a, a creative building masculinity it actually that builds things and creates things rather than destroys things mm. hmm. beautiful i love those images and um you know we're down to our last few moments here sadly in the conversation nick mm. i've really been appreciating it and yeah that's good you know yeah i wonder um you know one of course i want to give a strong call out to anyone who hasn't read the piece yet uh i'll put it in the show notes as well uh the essay that sort of sparked this whole conversation can psychedelic masculinity stop war uh, and I'd love for you to just yeah offer uh, where can people find you? Where can they follow more of your work, Nick, as you continue this uh, inquiry yourself and publish along the way? Thank you. Um, this these particular musings are coming out in mostly the independent dot org. So it's I N D Y P E N D E N T dot org, and that's where I think a lot of more the creative stuff. Um, but the probably the place where the journey. Um, through masculinity is probably honestly in the book because in the book I'm allowed to be much more creative than, you know, in a newspaper or journal format. So the ground below zero is probably the place where you could see the the change and it begins with nine 11 in New York and it ends with occupy wall street. Um, and, and then the journey uh, going from, you know, new Orleans during hurricane Katrina going to the Darfur genocide and the earthquake in Haiti and those are the places I report from and how those began to teach me how to change my idea of manhood to someone who's more of a humanitarian and trying to help rather than, than destroy. 
Beautiful. Well, I'm definitely intrigued that uh, I already was, but this, yeah, piqued my interest even more. Once again, thank you, Nick. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. And to all of you who've tuned in online, ask your questions and comments. And uh, yeah, it really helps us kick off this series of Mythic Masculine Live. And so onward we go. Thank you for listening to this live episode of the Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please visit any of the major podcast platforms and leave a review. This helps spread the word and reach a wider audience. Also, if you'd like to join me for future live episodes, head to themythicmasculine.com and click Become a Supporter. You'll get access to behind-the-scenes updates, bonus episodes, and the ability to join live conversations before they're released to the wider public. I don't accept advertising and rely on listeners like you to fund the show. Thanks for the consideration. Until next time.